Welcome to Flippening, the first and original podcast for full-time, professional, and institutional crypto investors. I'm your host, Clay Collins. Each week, we discuss the cryptocurrency economy, new investment strategies for maximizing returns, and stories from the front lines of financial disruption. Go to Flippening.com to join our newsletter for cryptocurrency investors and find out just why this podcast is called Flippening. Clay Collins is the CEO of Nomics. All opinions expressed by Clay and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Nomics or any other company. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. What you're about to hear is part two of my conversation with Eric Meltzer. Our previous episode with Eric has gone on to become one of our most popular episodes to date, and this is a second chance to hear from him. This episode stands on its own and includes a very compelling step-by-step strategy for bootstrapping a crypto nation state. For some background, Eric is a partner at In Blockchain, China's oldest and largest institutional crypto asset and blockchain fund with several billion under management, and he recently opened their U.S. office in Boston. In this episode, we discuss, one, a step-by-step plan for bootstrapping a crypto nation state from scratch, two, some of Eric's favorite token projects, three, token curated registries, four, master nodes as investment opportunities, five, the importance of biz dev for blockchain projects, six, Monero's move to ASIC resistance, seven, Ethereum's shift to proof of stake, and eight, ecosystem funds. We also talk about Silicon Valley, Hong Kong, Singapore, Switzerland, Berlin, and the effect that place has on the development of our ecosystem. I should mention that if you want to discuss these topics or this podcast episode, feel free to join us on our Telegram group at nomicstelegram.com. Conversations like this are why I do this podcast. Please enjoy part two of my conversation with Eric Meltzer of In Blockchain. So Eric, when we spoke last time, we had a pretty compelling conversation around a step-by-step strategy for bootstrapping a crypto nation state from scratch. Can you break this down for us? The basic idea is like, there's a lot of interest, I think, among crypto people in setting up new forms of human organization. So there's projects like Aragon that are trying to facilitate that. You see guys like Binance that are like so large and so extranational that they're almost approaching like sovereign entities themselves. And so a bunch of us were thinking like, what would be the, the path to bootstrap a new extranational sovereign entity? And kind of what I was thinking is that like most of these people out there that want to like start a country, first of all, like they're almost always dudes. They're almost always like a little kooky. The thing that they tend to seize on in, in what, in my opinion, is kind of like cargo culty is they think like, you know, what does a country have? Well, like a country has land. And so the priority for them is like, I got to go find some land if I want to have a country. And so you've seen everything from like people building stuff in the ocean, people claiming, you know, floating sea platforms, people claiming like tiny volcanic islands. There's some awesome guy, I believe it's called Libra Land, but it's like some guy figured out that like in between the border of two very small Eastern European countries, there's like this tiny sliver of unclaimed land. And so he just went there and is like, okay, this is now my country, labor land. I feel like it's going like, okay. Like how these things normally end is like someone just shows up and is like, nope, that's not a country. We're annexing it. I think maybe that hasn't happened to labor land yet. But anyway, so like what we kind of thought was like an alternative to this would be if you, if you did want to start sort of a sovereign entity, the first thing you want is actually recognition from other countries. It's not land. And so what you do is like, first you raise a lot of money. You call it a sovereign wealth fund. 
And you know, before crypto, that step was impossible. You would fail at the starting point because if you wanted to raise a lot of money for another country, you would have to put that money somewhere. And if you put it in the bank account of a bank in any other country, then at that point, like your new entity is not really an independent sovereign because all of its money is under the control of wherever the bank is. But you know, of course, with crypto, you can just say, well, this Bitcoin address represents you know our country's sovereign wealth fund. And the first thing you do with that money is you identify some countries that are in need of infrastructure investment. And you make a deal with them and you just say, look, we'll, we'll invest, you know, in your country. Hopefully you can invest in like, you know, electricity generation and do some mining or something. Like hopefully you can find some synergy. You just invest in these guys. And in return, they recognize your new entity as a true sovereign and they give you an embassy. And via this bootstrapping process, what you end up with is a bunch of small countries that recognize you and a bunch of embassies scattered around the world that you can sort of think of as like a distributed country. And I guess what's cool about this is like, if you issued your own cryptocurrency, I would assume that that cryptocurrency will appreciate and value a lot every time a new country recognizes you. And at some point, you have enough people that recognize you and you have enough money in the bank that you can go buy some land. At that point, you've successfully like bootstrapped a new country, which is something that no one's done in quite a while. I think it's like a cool idea. And I think we'll see flavors of this start to happen over the next decade or two, where people will realize that like crypto provides a really powerful way of like organizing humans around a common goal. It reminds me a lot of blockchain consensus mechanisms. Instead, this is nation state consensus mechanisms. And to your point, once you do buy some land, it's not just that you own the land, but you also have a network of other nation states that are sort of obliged to recognize that physical land as part of your nation. I'm kind of skeptical that you ever end up wanting to buy land in this scenario. Like, I think it actually, if you look at like the functions of a modern nation state, many of them have nothing to do with physical land or physical anything, right? It's like providing a passport, providing corporate domicile, all of these things. And I think a lot of these things you can do without land. And in some sense, land is like a liability, right? Like if you have a truly decentralized country where all of your physical holdings are just embassies in other countries, it's very hard to attack you. And so I think, yeah, like there's definitely potential for like sovereign entities to exist that remain landless. In background research for this idea, I looked into like, has there ever been sort of landless sovereign entities? And in history, it's happened a few times. Like it happened during World War II, where there were like these governments in exile that got kicked out by the Nazis, but were still recognized as the legitimate governments. But in a much more longer term and persistent fashion, there's this super interesting organization called the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. And what they are is like, they're the original government of Malta back from like the crusade days. And They're granted UN observer status and they're recognized as a sovereign entity by like 200 countries. They have embassies, really beautiful, like, you know, crusader age embassies all around Europe. And what they do now is like mostly humanitarian aid. And so being a sovereign is useful for them because they can like just enter war zones and and help evacuate people, which is like the main aim of their, of their NGO. Yeah, these guys exist and like, you know, international law kind of figured out a way to work around it. And so I think we will, we will start to see this like model of landless sovereigns come about because of crypto. I could see people wanting land perhaps because of alternative tax structures. I definitely see a huge value add for having embassies all over is that if you ever get into real trouble, you could make your way to the local embassy. And and I could see potentially an alternative model as opposed to having sort of a, a large country-sized piece of land and a bunch of small embassies that you could actually have potentially very large embassies in other countries that might have a hotel or a resort or maybe a strip of beach and then just wanting to hang out there. There's some precedent for that from like colonization where like you've had colonial powers that have had like legation 
areas within the countries they colonized, I think you can have a much less exploitative version of that where like a country could lease some land, you know, you could lease some land for 99 years or whatever it is to some other sovereign that like wants to have a place to do stuff. There's like a lot of fascinating models. I think like anything that sort of increases competition among nation states for people is a good thing. Right now, like the cost of switching countries is is ridiculously high. And you see that, right? Like anytime that switching costs are high, then people get badly treated. And so I think, you know, like as an American, like I really wish the US had to compete a lot harder to be a place people wanted to immigrate to. And what you see right now is the opposite. Like the US is, in my opinion, much to our detriment, very anti-immigration and is not at all competing for talent. And so I think like, yeah, the more you can force nations to compete for talent, the better. If I were super aggressive, I'd just be like, we're going to brain drain the world. Totally. That's like totally what the US should be doing. And, you know, having gone to school in China and like watched a bunch of my, like the school I went to in China is, is thought of as like the Harvard of China. And like, it was easier for me to get in. That's like not a brag. Like it was very easy for me to get in compared to the Chinese students. But the Chinese students that go to that school are like literally the 0.00001% top students in the country. And so like every single one of them should end up in the US if they want to. But what I saw is like many of my classmates who very much wanted to come to the US had no path to doing so, which to me is just like out of control, ridiculous. Let's do the lightning round of underrated, overrated, if you're down for this. Awesome. Hey, it's Clay cutting in here from the editor's booth to give you a heads up that a lot of what we're about to talk about might be out of scope for someone new to this space. We're about to discuss technical analysis, the FAT protocol thesis, Ethereum improvement proposal 999, ASIC resistance, and much more. Please know that if any of this is new to you, we've got you covered because our show notes for this episode contain a list of resources and links around these and more topics. You can find the show notes at blog.nomics.com forward slash 18. Okay, back to the interview. Fat protocol thesis, underrated or overrated? Mega overrated. So I was actually on a panel with Jill Carson, who's a great Twitter follow for anyone out there looking for cool people to follow on Twitter. Jill's super smart. And Nick Carter, who I mentioned before, we were on this panel about whether we believe in fat protocol. And my sense is just that it's not a thing. Like there's actually just no reason why the underlying protocol should be more valuable simply because people are launching tokens on top of it. EIP 999, overrated or underrated? So that's a fascinating question to me, right? Like I actually, I really wish that Augur was online so that I could make a prediction market bet on whether they will fork and get those funds back. The proposal that I saw that I liked a lot from this guy, Alex Vandersand, was that you could issue a token that represents those lost tokens. And if the lost tokens ever do get recovered, then these new tokens that you issued would be redeemable for the lost tokens that we recover. I think that's a really cool idea, right? Because the idea there is like the market will just price those. And so if people think there's a decent chance that those tokens are coming back, then like you imagine that the lost token tokens would trade at near parity with ETH. In reality, I think they would trade way under the market value of ETH, but it provides like a non-coercive way for these people to at least get some access back to their tokens. I personally, like, I think immutability is a super important component of blockchains. And so I think it would probably be a pretty bad idea to, you know, hard fork ETH to get those tokens back. But it's, yeah, it's like a super interesting test sort of of the community. I think as an issue, like its importance is impossible to overrate. If they do this for... Parity, will they do it for me? And so why parity, not me? And then what about at scale over a lot of years? Yeah, it's a big deal. A lot of the vitriol people have towards parity, I think is kind of sad. The parity folks are shipping cool stuff and then they're a big part of the Ethereum community. And I think they've gotten a lot of hate over this, which is sad. On the other hand, like it probably is not a good idea to recover those funds. 
Monero's move to ASIC resistance, overrated or underrated? I'm like a huge fan of ASICs. I think it's not a good idea. It's cool that they did it. Like it's, it's interesting to see like Monero is a, is a very decentralized community. It's a very like noisy and, and fragmented community. And so it was cool to see them like come to consensus around hating Bitmain ASICs. And so their logic for being ASIC resistant, which I do respect, is like they think if there's only one company out there with these ASICs, then we should not allow them to be, you know, controlling such a large chunk of the hash power for network security reasons. I don't think they're wrong there. I think long term, though, it makes much more sense to embrace ASICs and to have a lot of reference designs for powerful ASICs out there publicly so that you can have a lot of manufacturers making the ASICs. Because at the point where I guess there's two facets to this, right? And if you want like a much deeper look at this issue, David Vorick from Saya has a blog about like why ASICs are good that I think is a great read. The short summary is just that like if you're relying on graphics cards, you're also kind of relying on, mon- on a monopoly because typically it's only NVIDIA graphics cards that really work very well for this. The other issue that I think is much more important is that like if you buy ASICs, so if you spend like millions, in some instances, hundreds of millions of dollars of CapEx on buying ASICs that only work for a given chain, your fate is now bound to the fate of that chain. And you're strongly incentivized to not do anything that's long-term negative for that chain. So you have sort of like a suicide pact, right? Whereas like if you have GPUs and you get 51%, then like maybe you just go do a massive double spend and then go like mine some other GPU coin because like you're not bound to that coin. You have no loyalty. And so I think like ASICs in general are great. But I think that the Monero decision to move away from a specific ASIC that was the dominant hash power on their network for a while is an understandable one. What I respect about Monero is the pace at which they learn. They might not always be making the right decisions, but they just automatically do a hard fork every so often. And so they're not afraid of making decisions and and everyone seems to learn as a result. And it almost feels like one of the best indicators of the success of a project is the rate at which they can learn, whether or not those learnings are like sort of positive or negative. It's cool to watch. Okay, time out. I'm going to do some native advertising for the Nomics API. This episode of Flippening is sponsored by the Nomics API. The Nomics API offers squeaky clean and normalized primary source trade data offered through fast and modern endpoints. Instead of having to integrate with a bunch of exchange APIs of varying quality, you can get everything through one screaming fast firehose. If you found that you or your developers have to spend too much time cleaning up and maintaining data sets, instead of identifying opportunities, or if you're tired of interpolated data and want raw primary source trades delivered simply and consistently with top-notch support and SLAs, then check us out at nomics.com. Okay, back to the show. BizDev for blockchain projects, overrated or underrated? To the extent that it's like Ripple-style BizDev, where it's just like you go find the junior VP at some random bank and you're like, hey, you want to do a Ripple trial? And they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. And then like the next day you announce it as like, Bank of America partners with Ripple. I'm very down on that. I'm not a fan. I don't think it's useful at all. I think it's basically just market manipulation. Real biz dev for projects that like actually have a useful thing that are going out and developing interesting relationships with companies, I think is great. I guess the company that comes to mind that's doing, in my opinion, a pretty good job of that is Stellar actually. So like Stellar has this relationship with Keybase where they're, you know, integrating Stellar payments into Keybase. And I think Stellar has a whole bunch of other stuff that is currently not public, but like fascinating stuff in the pipeline in terms of BD. So yeah, like I think it can be a great strategy, but I think often it's like just completely misused as a market manipulation strategy by projects like Ripple. It does feel like it can be helpful to accelerate network effects, but 
if your project is dependent upon biz dev for your network effects, then you probably don't have a sustainable advantage. It's just going to decay. Totally. EOS, overrated or underrated? Now, I think it's like properly rated. But back in the day when we invested in it, I think it was like massively underrated. Understandably so, right? So like a lot of the non-technical aspects of EOS appeared very scammy. So like they had a giant billboard in Times Square and they were making pretty grandiose claims and, you know, putting on fancy events. And so a lot of people basically wrote the project off as a scam. And then we took a closer look at it and we saw that Dan Larimer and uh, to a lesser extent, but this guy's also very involved is this guy, Ian Grigg, who's just a very like OG crypto dude. When we saw those two were, were the technical team behind the project, we figured it was going to be something big. And that turned out to be like a very profitable bet for us. Token curated directories, overrated or underrated? I'm so interested in these token curated registries, right? Like there's a, a very interesting project that's, that is, I'm, I'm on the fence about investing in right now that's doing cool stuff for TCRs. And the, the team behind it has put in a ton of like really interesting thought in terms of like how to set up the incentives for these. I think for me, the proof will be in the pudding, right? Like there's either going to be some big TCRs out there that are really valuable or there won't be. And I think like writing think pieces about it is probably less valuable than just going and building some and see how they work. Actually, like I was really tempted. So like proof of work has that proof of work common app, right? And on the common app, basically like any company that writes to me and is like, hey, we want to be added to this pool of companies that sees the applications. I'm happy to add them like as long as they look decent. And so what I was thinking is like, it would be cool to turn that into a TCR. And so the idea is like all the companies that are currently on there become the validators. And if a new company wants to join the registry, they have to buy some tokens and they stake the tokens. And then the existing companies decide, would adding these guys be a net positive to the registry or would it lower the bar, so to speak? And so I think that'd be really fun, right? Like it would be like a very, it'd be like a toy TCR because it's pretty small. But I think it would be cool to see like whether that works and like what the failure modes are. So yeah, I think TCRs are... They're really interesting. And like, they're sort of a subset of what I think of as like the Oracle slash prediction market mechanism design space. All of those things are going to be like super interesting. And and like, as we figure out how to properly leverage them and and to avoid the failure modes that they have, we'll probably be able to build some really cool stuff. Yeah, I think that was the most succinct explanation of uh, TCI that I've ever heard is what you described you do with proof of work. So now I've got to ask, since it just came up, Prediction marketplaces, overrated or underrated? I think every specific prediction market is overrated because so far none of them have managed to ship. But I think the concept itself is probably like either underrated or properly, like accurately rated. There's a lot of really cool stuff you can do with those. I'm really looking forward to like seeing some of them actually show up. And I think like they'll start with things that look like toys. So like there'll be, you know, ways to bet on sports or ways to bet on stuff like the parody hack. Actually, so like the parody hack was a really interesting example to me because if you think about it right now, parody has like, I think it's like 120 million or 90 million. They have like a huge incentive to convince the Ethereum community to get their funds back. And the incentive on the other side is pretty diffuse, right? Like my incentive to oppose them getting their funds back is either largely non-monetary, like it's just out of some sense that like immutability is important for ETH, or it's like this extremely diffuse thing where it's like, well, I don't want like the supply of ETH to increase. And so I don't want you to get your money back. But if you think about it, like typically when you look at these situations, whoever has like a concentrated incentive tends to get their way over like a giant group of people that have a very diffuse incentive. And so what I thought about was like, if you have a prediction market and you have a lot of people that predict that the parity funds will not be restored, 
then those people now have an actual monetary incentive to make sure that doesn't happen. And so like you could see how prediction markets would actually lead to people taking specific actions in the real world to increase the probability that their prediction comes true. And like the really scary examples of that are like assassination markets and stuff like that. But I think like even on a much less spooky, you know, thing, you can see like the prediction itself actually leads to like a change in the world. That's super, super fascinating. Delegated proof of stake, overrated or underrated? I feel very boring saying like so much of this stuff is like accurately rated, but I think like DPoS, like we have a pretty good idea of how it works these days. There's like two big projects that use it. There's Steemit and BitShares and EOS uses a quite similar model to those two. My sense is that like if you're trying to build the M1 Abrams like battle-tested sovereign resistant blockchain like Bitcoin, you don't want to use DPoS. But if you want to do something that you can actually run, you know, high throughput applications on and sacrificing some level of decentralization is okay, then DPoS is a pretty appealing way to do it. It's appealing in its simplicity, right? Like it's not, there's not a lot of complication to how the block production works and what the sort of pathological cases are for it. Stable coins, overrated or underrated? I feel like your average stable coin project is highly overrated. I think there's only really like two stable coin projects out there that I think are like legit. And so that's Maker and Basecoin. I guess Basecoin's called Basis now, they rebranded. I think Basis is cool from the perspective of like, if it works, it has some really strong incentives behind it that'll push adoption and perhaps create virtuous cycles that results in a truly huge market cap for Basis. And then I think Maker is cool for two reasons. One, like it's a, it's a very clever mechanism. And two, like it actually works so far. And so you see these, the DAI system that Maker created has remained stable even during pretty bad market crashes. I guess what I worry about with Maker is that like the demand for the stablecoin might vastly exceed the demand for people that want to leverage ETH into these CDPs. And so like Maker, I think, is likely to run into some liquidity issues. But I think those two projects are both really interesting and cool and you know are, are not overrated. However, there's like this massive proliferation of what I think of as like basecoin clones, of maker clones, of like weird implementations of seniorage shares. And I feel like most of these are not going to work. Most of them have like really obvious problems. And then the other problem is like most of these systems require a lot of money to get started. And so like Basecoin got a lot of flack for raising a huge presale round and they're going to raise even more money soon. But I think actually that's like absolutely the right thing to do because having that initial stability is a lot of times these things are like path dependent, right? Like if you start out stable, you have a higher chance of remaining stable in the long term. And so a lot of these stablecoin projects have come to us and they've been like, you know, oh, you should like us because like we're not raising very much money. We're not greedy. And I'm like, well, no, that's like, <laughs> that's a bad thing. Masternodes as an investment opportunity, overrated or underrated? It's played out. I know a couple of people that made a bunch of money doing that, but uh, it's like priced in by now. Ether shift to proof of stake, overrated or underrated? I mean, what I love about what they're doing is like, it's so considered. They've spent so much time thinking about this and thinking about all the ways that it could go wrong. And they're doing it in this really like incremental way. I think it's great. Like ETH should move faster than Bitcoin. And ETH should be willing to take these risks. And so like, I'm super curious to see how it turns out. And I would say like, I'm pretty bullish on it working out for them. There's a lot of projects that claim to be like ETH killers because they have this feature or that feature. And I think like, honestly, like ETH is probably going to eat most of those guys' lunch. Clear regulatory guidance and clear regulatory compliance on the part of crypto projects and the impact that will have on the space. Oh yeah, it's, it's super important. I mean, the two places you see this a lot are like one right now, there's a lot of projects 
And there's a lot of founders, like what I've seen, you know, over the past year or so is there's a lot of really badass founders who like just graduated from Stanford and they want to go do something, but like, they're just not willing to take like the risk of going to jail because the regulatory environment for what they want to do is super unclear. And so as a result, they're being very, very cautious and they're not really charging ahead the way they could if there was like clear regulation. So once you have that, you'll see a lot of projects that say, okay, now we know what the target is. We're just going to go be super compliant with that and go make this thing. There's this guy, John Pfeffer, who I I imagine most of the listeners of this have already read this memo, but he has this memo sort of about like, you know, what the price of Bitcoin is going to look like if the really, really huge institutional players get involved. And, you know, spoiler, it's very, very high. And the big obstacle to those guys getting involved is largely just custody. And so like, I initially thought that was like custody from a technical perspective, because like technically, you know, safely holding Bitcoins is not that easy, but it turns out like that's totally wrong. And so like having talked to uh, this guy, Matt Walsh, at Fidelity, who I like a lot, kind of clued me into like what the real situation is. What it really is, is like you need these regulated custodians. They're like these government anointed, you know, special institutions that have plans in place for how they hold these assets. And so until you have those, and until the regulation around those is really clear, you know, mutual funds, school endowments, whatever, can't just go buy Bitcoin. And so I think the impact of that even now is probably still like underrated. Like once those custody solutions hit, it's going to be pretty wild. Indexing as an investment strategy. Yeah, skeptical. There's not that many good assets out there. Usually what you're doing is like mixing Bitcoin in with stuff that's way worse than Bitcoin. And so you'd be better off just holding Bitcoin or, you know, holding like Bitcoin, ETH and like two or three other projects that you think are cool. And so I think like these sort of automatically rebalanced indexes are, I'm skeptical. Ecosystem funds, overrated or underrated? Both. So like the the really big ecosystem funds are going to have a lot of trouble deploying capital in a way that makes any sense. However, I think small ecosystem funds that are targeted and that are run by people that really understand what the ecosystem needs can be really useful and are probably underrated. And I think like it's going to become sort of something that every project does. I just think that like, you know, the difference in impact between like a 20 or $50 million fund that's targeted at doing some like really important stuff that no one's really building right now versus like, $1 $1 billion fund where you're just splashing money around on anyone that will use your system is you're going to have very different impacts there. Silicon Valley, overrated or underrated? I think it's it's still underrated. Like I'm from the Bay Area. I'm like a Bay Area native. I now live in Boston while my wife is doing school out here. And I think the opportunity cost of not being in the Bay remains pretty high. There are other hubs that are also great. Like Beijing is another great place to be. But just like the proximity to all those investors and all of those other people that are building crypto projects that might be the people that end up acquiring you or the people that you merge with or the people that you just, you know, poach designers from, whatever it is, like just that melting pot of activity is incredibly useful. Hong Kong. I don't know anything about the Hong Kong crypto scene. I know there's this really cool guy, Jihan Chu, who runs a fund out of there called Kinetic. But Hong Kong as a city is is super awesome. Like it's actually like my fondest dream is that San Francisco will eventually wake up and decide that it makes sense to build a ton of housing and, you know, turn into like a mega city like Hong Kong. But I think uh, maybe my grandkids are going to be the ones that see that. Singapore, over or underrated? Personally, not a Singapore fan. My absolute favorite science fiction author of all time, this guy, William Gibson, had this really trenchant description of uh, Singapore, which was Disneyland with the death penalty. Oh, God. Hearing that kind of made me never want to go there. And then my dad had a funny anecdote about like in the 90s, he was flying into Singapore and they had some announcement on the plane that was like, you know, he's from California too. He went to Berkeley in the 60s, if you get my drift. He's on the plane and they go, anyone found 
carrying narcotics or marijuana will be executed upon landing <laughs> or something crazy like that. And he was like, oh man, like this is not the place. Maybe this is silly, but like I kind of think of Singapore and Hong Kong as being quite similar. Like they're both these extremely commercially vibrant Asian, you know, city states. I come down massively on the Hong Kong side of things. Like Hong Kong is dirty and crazy and you know it's 24 hours and it's it's ultra multicultural, but you're not gonna get caned for chewing gum. And so like I think you could almost classify people as like Singapore people or Hong Kong people, and I'm like much more of a Hong Kong person. Switzerland and Crypto Valley. Over or underrated? That doesn't really seem like it's much of a thing anymore. I mean, a lot of people were like, we're really pushing it. I think there was like a small group of people that were kind of trying to make that happen. And then I guess people saw what happened with Tezos, you know, and that was really unfortunate. And so the appeal of these Swiss foundations maybe is a little bit tempered now. Berlin, over or underrated? Berlin's great. I think Berlin's great as a crypto hub. Berlin has been like a spot for hackers for a long time. You know, so like growing up in San Francisco, I was really into, there's this, this amazing hackerspace called Noise Bridge in the Mission District in SF. It's a real scene. It's kind of insane. It's gotten a little bit like more mellow in recent years. But what I didn't realize is that like the hackerspace scene actually got started in, in Germany. And so when I went to Berlin for the first time, I went to this place called Seabase. And it's one of the first hackerspaces in Germany. And it is a mind-blowing space. Like it's, you know, the upstairs is cool. It's like this kind of normal event space. And then the downstairs legit looks like a Hollywood alien spacecraft set. Like it's unbelievable. It's all like, you know, these volunteers set this thing up and they have all these great events there. I think Berlin will stay like a hub for very serious crypto projects that are shipping like real stuff. It's a lot less commercial and it's a lot more focused on the tech, which is great. It's like giving the rest of the world a run for their money. Uh, Gibraltar. Under or overrated? I don't know. I don't know much about it. You know, Gibraltar and, and Malta seem like the two contenders for kind of like regulatory arbitrage plays. I'm a little skeptical of like geographical regulatory arbitrage in general, though, as compared to like crypto regulatory arbitrage, just because like we tried that. Like if you look, I have a lot of friends that were really involved in online poker back in the day. And like all these online poker companies tried to like go to friendly jurisdictions and the US still popped them anyway. The arm of US regulation is extremely long. And I'm not sure like you can just go to some other country to avoid it. Maybe Estonia might also fall into that category. Okay, I'm going to give you just a couple more sort of standard non-geographical ones. Modern portfolio theory when it comes to crypto assets, overrated or underrated? My friend again, Nick Carter like has some interesting charts about that from Coinmetrics, and you can see that almost everything is correlated. And I think it's all getting more correlated too. The question of like how crypto fits into a portfolio is a super interesting one. And so like, there's been a lot of hype about Bitcoin being an uncorrelated asset. And so far, it kind of looks like it is. However, we haven't seen what happens to Bitcoin in like a true massive economic depression. If it remains uncorrelated in that situation, that's going to be massively bullish for Bitcoin. The people that I know who know about this stuff, and I'm not one of them, the people that I talk to who kind of think a lot about these macroeconomic issues tend to think it's unlikely that Bitcoin would stay uncorrelated simply because like as it grows into the same institutional investors that invest in all the other stuff are going to invest in Bitcoin. And, you know, if you look at like what happened with gold, gold wasn't that uncorrelated in 2008. I hope it does. It'd be very cool if it was like an uncorrelated asset, but I'm a little skeptical that it will be. Maybe negatively correlated with traditional asset classes. If you were a capital allocator at a large institutional fund, would your strategy be to diversify among different strategies and different funds? Or would it be to just be as opportunistic as possible and just, you know, rake in the gains? If I was allocating at a really, really large fund, I think 
there's two strategies I would pursue. One is I would invest in other funds. Like right now, like it's honestly, like if I wasn't doing what I am doing, where I'm investing in early projects, I would actually love to be investing in funds just because there's so many like ridiculously brilliant people that are coming into the space and starting these crypto funds. I think like crypto funds have gotten a bad reputation because a lot of the early ones were just started by like some random dude that had some Bitcoin. But what I'm seeing now is like these people who are just incredibly talented, who have super, super interesting strategies for making money in the space. And so, yeah, like I actually have a friend who's setting up a, a crypto fund of funds for some folks in China. And I think that's like a really good opportunity. The other thing I guess I would do is like, if you have a lot of capital to deploy, the only strategy that is really available to you is just buying big chunks of these market traded assets, you know, cause there's, you can't deploy like my early stage fund is like, you know, 20 million bucks. And like, I think deploying all of that will be difficult if you're dealing with hundreds of millions or even billions, you know, being able to deploy that without just buying large chunks of Bitcoin is pretty hard. The securitization or the tokenization of securities, is that overrated or underrated? This is another thing that I'm really interested in. There's like two angles to this, right? So there's the tokenization of traditional equities. And people talk about that like, oh, it's going to be a $500 trillion market or whatever. I think that they're right. Like eventually you will, you will tokenize all these things. There are some benefits to tokenizing them. I'm skeptical that it's, it's not like a huge deal to me. And there's no way to like aggregate, capture that, all that upside. Like it's just going to be, these things are going to get a little bit more efficient. Something that a lot of people haven't really thought through enough is like, if you tokenize one of these equities, right? So like, imagine I tokenize like a stake in your house and then someone hacks you and they accumulate a majority stake in your house by like stealing your tokens. And then they just show up to your house and they're like, all right, well, it's my house now. Like, you're not going to give them your house. You're going to tell them to fuck off. And so when you have these things that are tokenizing an underlying asset, they're not going to be like bearer assets, right? They're just going to be like, you're going to be able to like reissue them if you lose them or something, but they're not going to be like Bitcoin where like ownership is 100% of the battle with Bitcoin. Like if you have the private key, that's your Bitcoin. If you have the private key to like some security token, that's certainly not necessarily your security. And so at the point where that's the case, then like all the normal assumptions about what makes a blockchain cool kind of go out the window. Like you no longer care that much about like the security of the underlying blockchain, right? Because like say I have 51% attack, like the security token blockchain, and I just steal everyone's security tokens. Like who cares? Like we just go to like the security issuers and tell them like, hey, these guys like stole the tokens, not really theirs. Go ahead and reissue them. So that's like a really long-winded way of saying that I think it is true that tokenized securities are going to be a thing, but that I don't think it's that big of a deal. The part that I think is much more exciting are tokens that are themselves securities. You know, in that bucket, you have like Saya, the storage project has this really cool token called Saya Fund. And how Saya Funds work is like they get a perpetuity. So like, I believe it's like three to 8%, depending on how you calculate it, of all of the contract fees on the Saya network. Hold one of those Saya Funds, then you have like a long-term incentive to make Saya better. And, you know, like short-term pumping the Saya price doesn't do anything for your Saya Funds. So it's like a really cool way of aligning incentives. You know, without mentioning any names, there's a lot of projects that have released ERC-20 tokens to the public before launching their mainnet. And in many ways, that's a security, right? Like it's people who hold those tokens are making a bet that when the mainnet does launch, it's going to be cool. And I actually think those are kind of cool. There's a lot of dispute over like whether retail investors should be able to buy those things. But like the idea that you can buy something in advance of it existing and then, you know, make a bet on whether it's going to turn out better or worse than people's expectations is kind of interesting to me. And there's a lot of like interesting ways you could go with that if securities law wasn't so strict. So like an, an idea that David Vorick from Sire ran by me that I thought was really cool was like when you sell miners, when you sell like, you know, ASIC mining chips, typically what you do is like you have a pre-order so someone can buy the ASIC ahead of time. And then 
five months later, however long it takes, they get their machine. And what David was saying was like, it'd be really cool if you could instead sell them a token and that token is redeemable for one ASIC. And so the idea there is like, if the demand for ASICs goes crazy, some people can just flip their tokens to people that want the ASICs really badly and will pay over market. Or if like, you know, the ASIC manufacturer takes forever, it's up for grabs whether they're actually going to ever ship, then maybe you can just sell your token at a loss, but like you recoup some of your capital and the people who buy it are people that think that they actually are going to ship. And so there's like a lot of really interesting, like flexible, like very cool stuff you can do with this. I think most of it is pretty hampered by regulation. And so from an investment perspective, we kind of avoid this stuff just because like it's a lot more complicated than sort of native digital assets. There's people talking about the ability for decentralized exchanges to facilitate people swapping securities with each other without an intermediary. But it's like those tokens still have to dial home and check on KYC, AML compliance and blacklist, whitelists and all that other stuff. That was something that really appealed to me. Harbor is doing that, the David Sachs thing. ZeroX is kind of building that functionality in. But again, from talking to Matt Walsh at Fidelity, my understanding of the stuff is extremely hazy. But what it seemed to me was that like it's actually not legal for me and you to exchange securities without someone in the middle or without like an ATS involved, even if we're both accredited investors. The system is like so complicated that it just seems like, you know, you got to do so much hacking just to get around all this stupid regulatory cruft. At the end of the day, it's maybe just not the most exciting thing to invest in for us. Hey, it's Clay. Since we're talking about security tokens, I want to tell you about a three-part audio documentary we're coming out with in a few weeks about the rise of security tokens. You know how we're talking about how complex they are right here in this conversation? Well, after interviewing and speaking with a number of experts and operators in the security token space, I actually find the topic to be much less complex now, and I hope this series will do the same for you. You'll hear more about this later. Is it better just to use a really efficient centralized database? I don't know. It's an important, outstanding question, especially if you can't swap these things on Craigslist. That's why I think like, if security tokens do become a thing, I think it's more likely that they show up on blockchains like EOS or other blockchains that like make some decentralization sacrifices in favor of performance, just because like the security model, again, is not that important. If your token gets stolen, you're going to have some recourse to get it back. And so, you know, hosting these on Ethereum might just be like a waste of power. Yeah, like New York can't have the Russian mob owning like half of Trump Tower, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, like it's just there's this fundamental disconnect I think people have where like they haven't really thought through the mechanics of how this thing would work. And so they think of it as like, oh, tokenized securities. But then like at the end of the day, there is a bottom line. And that is like the government 100% controls the issuers of these things. And, you know, at the point where there is an issuer that is very much regulated, the code is law is just like totally meaningless here. I would love to have more guests like yourself on the show. I know it's no guarantee that if you say that I should interview them, that they will say yes. But can you just on the record recommend two people, a man and a woman that you think I should invite onto the show? Can I do two of each? Because I just have, I have so many friends that I think are, are awesome for this. Yeah, I think you should interview Nick Carter from Fidelity. I think he would be awesome. And then Dan Elietzer from IDO and also formerly of the MIT Bitcoin Club. Is just a super smart dude with a bunch of really interesting opinions on this stuff. Linda Xie from Scalar Capital is one of my favorite people in the space and super smart. And then also Ling and Ella from Binance Labs from Binance's new fund are also super bright and have a lot of interesting stuff to think about in the space. So this concludes part two of my series with Eric. It's been a lot of fun. 
Just a heads up that in the next few weeks, we'll be releasing a three-part audio documentary about security tokens and asset-backed tokens. We're looking for sponsors for this audio documentary series, so please get in touch if you're interested. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next week. That's it for this week. To sign up for our free crypto investing newsletter, listen to other episodes, or get the show notes from this episode, please visit flippening.com. I also invite you to check out the startup that funds this podcast, Nomics, spelled N-O-M-I-C-S, at nomics.com. Finally, if you got value from the show, the biggest thing you can do to help us out is to leave a five-star review with some comments and feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next week.